One of the questions that often accompanies a discussion on the extent of the atonement, that, that discussion being phrased in the question, for whom did Christ die, the extent of the atonement, a question that's often brought up in that discussion is this. From God's perspective, was it possible that His Son could have come into the world, obeyed His Father to death, even the death of the cross, rise from the dead, ascend into the heavens, and potentially no one is saved? What, could that have been possible? Did Christ's work merely unlock a door of possible salvation for each and every human being in the same way and then leave it up to individuals as to whether or not that saving work would be applied in their case ultimately and so that in theory perhaps nobody would be saved. Is that possible that if, if no one came and exercised faith and maybe no one would be saved. Or, did God have a particular people in mind? Did Christ's life and death and resurrection accomplish salvation for God's elect? Did He really make a true atonement as a proper substitute for actual men with names as a legitimate high priest, so that in actuality, in the mind of God, every one of God's elect will certainly be saved. Now we would, we think, we believe with Scripture, deny the former and affirm the latter. The question is, in God's mind, was the work of Christ a potential salvation for an unknown number, or was it an actual saving work for a specific number? Again, we, we would affirm, yes. In splicing together the words of our confession of faith, the Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, hath fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto Him. And to all those for whom Christ hath, hath obtained eternal redemption, He doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. In other words, we would say the Son of God lived and died in the place of those chosen in Him before the foundation of the world and given to Him by His Father. That's how we would answer that question. In other words, it wasn't possible that Christ would come and live and die and raise from the dead and ascend to the heavens and maybe nobody's saved. That, that, that's not possible. He came for His people, specific people. He acted as the great high priest for the Israel of God. He said in, in his prayer, his high priestly prayer, I do not ask for the world. I do not pray for the world, but, the, but for those whom you have given me out of the world. He acted as a priest for those the Father had given to him. He laid down his life for his bride. 
It was from heaven that he came and sought her, and with his own blood that he bought her to be his forever. And now, in saving us and gathering us to himself, he now washes us and cleanses us, his bride. He sanctifies us, his bride. He purifies us of spots and blemishes that we might be holy and without blemish before him. His bride, that's all of these things are about what Christ does for his church, his people. And one means of that sanctifying process, going back into the eternal mind of God, one of the ways that God has ordained that these people chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world would be actually made holy, one of the means is by collecting us into little assemblies called churches. And one way that the church is a means of sanctifying us making us more like Christ, is by teaching us to, to, to dwell with people, to endure with people, to bear with people, to endure with people, and love people who are not like us, who are actually difficult to love and get along with at times. Again, our, our example is Christ. We're being made to be like Him. Christ did not clean us up and then save us so that He could then love us. No, He loved us first. While we were not clean, then He saved us, and now He cleans us. And so we have to learn to love one another as people who still need a lot of cleaning, a lot of watching. We're not afforded the privilege of waiting until we all obtain to the fullness of the stature of Christ, to perfection, to, to full beauty. We're not, we're not afforded the option of waiting till that is complete to then love each other. It's not how it works. We love each other prior to that. A part of the process of being sanctified in a church is learning to walk together in unity as a church made up of people who still have a lot of sin, still need a lot of cleaning. And yet, the Scriptures say, walk in unity, have unity of mind. And we can't say, well, yeah, but we're sinners. It's really not possible for us to achieve that. We all have, have faults. There's just no way. The Scriptures don't give us that, that, that excuse. We are to dwell in unity. Our text has been 1 Corinthians 1.10. Our, our foundational text where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now from this text, we have extracted the doctrine. I'm going to recap everything in a very short period of time. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. That's the doctrine. Now, in unpacking that, or defending that doctrine, we went on to paint a picture of unity, defined as the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony that flows naturally from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual 
love. That's the picture. That's what we're after. Then we proved the priority of unity using four criteria from Scripture. The number of references, the placement of those references, the language of those references, and then the denunciation of the alternatives to unity. We put all of that together and we come to the conclusion, unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. It must be a priority. Then we moved into the application of it all, the practice of unity. How do we obtain and maintain this unity? And we then hung our hat on one text and let the Apostle Peter instruct us, 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, we could have went to many different texts. We, could, we will spend the rest of our lives unpacking texts. But I, just to, to summarize it all up in one, we went there, where Peter gives us a list of characteristics that have to be ours if we are going to pursue doctrinal and practical harmony with one another. We are to pursue unity of mind by immersing ourselves in the Scriptures while at the same time being sympathetic to various levels of understanding, interpretation, and application, filled with brotherly love, always aiming at edification, nurturing in ourselves tender hearts that we might better bear with one another's infirmities and ignorance and errors, but also having humble and friendly minds that by proper self-evaluation and external demeanor, we might foster genuine kindness toward one another. Now with all that being said, we have one more matter that I think will be very helpful in this study with regard to maintaining this unity, and that is... How are we to deal with disunity? How do we deal with division? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 11. We've been spending time in verse 10, but verse 11 begins with the word for. Why does Paul have to say what he says in verse 10? For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. There was in the church of Corinth, in fact, quarreling. Disunity, division. And he writes to address it because it is a fact of reality. Disunity, division, discord, controversy, disagreement, it happens. It's just a fact of reality. In chapter 11, verse 18, he says, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. It happens. The matter... But the fact of the matter is that as men and women affected by the fall, that is, sinners, each of us having our own hearts and minds and bodies tainted with sin, the fact of the matter is there will be divisions. The best that we can hope for this side of eternity is the pursuit of harmony, not lockstep uniformity. We cannot expect that. If you're after lockstep uniformity, think of the uh, military marching, lockstep. Hundreds of men marching, and yet their feet sound like one large foot because they're stepping in such perfect unison. Every step. That's lockstep uniformity. If that's what you're after, then you have two options. 
join a cult, or stay at home. You see, in a cult, everybody is required to adopt the same thinking, the same opinions, the same practices of whatever, whoever the leader is, or whatever their, their doctrine teaches, to a T. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for variations of opinion. At home, if you choose that option, at home, there's nobody to disagree with because it's just you. You set the rules. Now, over the years, we've had many people pass through our church, usually visiting only once or for a short time. And, or maybe you meet people that maybe it hasn't been here, but you, you know these, these types of people. We've met them. They seem very doctrinally and very uh, practically astute. They will appear to be very scripturally educated. They, they know their Bibles well, and very often they have all of their I's dotted and their T's crossed with what seems like, the more you listen, every single possible practical question that there is. They have every bit of it. And yet, the longer you talk to them, you find out that many of them have not been a part of a church in years or even decades. They, 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 they will present themselves really as the judge and jury of all matters of doctrine and practice. Very often when they visit a church, they will immediately begin to drill me or one of you as to what, what do you believe and what do you do here? And what do you believe about this and how do you do this? And usually you, you get about three-fourths of your answer out before they begin to tell you what they believe and what they do. That's the only reason they ask the question. Because they, they want you to know that they have already thought through this and they already have their answer. And they are holding you up to the measuring rod. Very often they can name pretty much every well-known preacher in, in our current evangelical culture, and they can also tell you what they like about them and what they disagree with them on. But when you ask them about their own church, their own pastor, they don't have one. You find out where they're from. Well, what about this guy? What about this guy? What about this guy? They know all of the churches and all the pastors in their area, and they can tell you why they disagree with every one of them. And now they just sit at home reading their Bibles, and issuing what are effectively papal bulls from their kitchen. I make the rules. I determine the doctrine. I determine the practice. And I've often wondered when you meet people like this, I've often wondered, how does someone get to that place? How does this happen? Did they start out like this? Did they, did they set out from the beginning of their, of their profession of Christianity being alone and, and somebody just handed them a list of, of everyone else's errors and, and reasons why they shouldn't join this or that church and they've just kept that and they, I don't think that's what happens, but I've often wondered, how does someone, how does a man or a woman get to this place in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s where you ask them, where do you go to church? Well, I, I don't go to church. I just sort of sit, sit by myself at home. How does that happen? For me, this is, um, it's, it's unimaginable. I feel like I'm so dependent on the body of believers, and, and obviously because of the way I was raised, I don't, I don't even, I can't comprehend the thought that I would not be a part of a church in the world. I wonder, how does, how does this happen? 
And I, I think at least one of the answers is just this issue. They have for some reason begun to expect lockstep uniformity. And if they find disagreement, they leave. They can't endure disagreement. Why? Because it exposes to them. It puts a light on them and says, you know what? You don't know everything. This is another Christian, another believer, a real live, honest to goodness, born again Christian who doesn't agree with you. They're going to be in heaven with you. And that, they can't endure that. They can't stand it. The thought, because it shows them, you know what, you're not perfect. You don't know everything. Because there are no perfect churches, they end up leaving every church. They have no church because they are the only people that, that they know that meet all of their criteria. They're too orthodox to join a cult. And in their minds, they're too orthodox to join a church. There are no good churches. Many of them are sitting at home right now, this very moment, all alone, probably praying that, some, that God would send someone to plant a biblical church in their area because the other seven don't meet their standards. They've, they've, something's wrong there. I can't go there. Something's wrong there. I can't go there. Listen, if you're going to be a part of a Christian church patterned after the, the, the model of the New Testament, which gives room for liberty of conscience, which gives room for difference of opinion and application, which understands varying levels of sanctification, then you cannot expect or require cult-like uniformity. It's not biblical. It can't happen this side of eternity. Remember, our confession says, God alone is Lord of the conscience, 21.2, and... The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, 26.3. These are biblical statements. And so for all of our pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony, we need to be prepared to deal with the reality, the inevitable, which is disagreement, disunity, division, discord, controversy. We have to know how to deal with that. So to help us with this, I've recruited two of my friends to help us. One of them I've gotten to know pretty well over the years, and the other I know slightly less. Their names are James Durham and Thomas Brooks. And for this week and next week, what I'm, I want to do is let them do most of the talking. I'm going to say almost all of the talking this week, beginning with James Durham. He was born in 1622. He was ordained to the ministry in 1647 at the age of 25. He ministered in Glasgow, Scotland. He's well known for commentaries on the Revelation, the Song of Solomon, the Ten Commandments. He's published, published lectures on Job, 72 sermons on Isaiah 53, and many, many more sermons on various topics. And he died in 1658 at the age of 37. 37. Now after his death, there was a treatise published entitled The Dying Man's Testament to the Church of Scotland. Or, you know how these titles are, the long title, or, or the short title, or, the long one. A Dying Man's Testament to the Church of Scotland, or a treatise concerning scandal, where he dealt with this issue, divisions in the church. Now, Chapel Library has published a little extract from this treatise, and they have called it How to 
heal rather than deepen divisions. So it, it is very short. You could read it in probably 20 minutes or less. But in that, in that little booklet, Durham lists nine tips for dealing with division. Nine things. What I want to do is just walk through Durham's nine points. I'm going to read his points. I'll give some quotes from him. I'll add some of my own comments. I've reworded some of the things he has said in light of, you know, what seems like regular uh, accusations of uh, plagiarism. I'll just say from the outset, most of this is James Durham. If you want to compare the two, I'll give you my notes. You can read the book. Um, most of this is him. I want to let him preach. Um, but I'll add some comment, and, and I've edited, edited some things here and there. So, from James Durham, nine, nine tips for healing division, the inevitable. There's going to be division. How can we heal it? And we keep this in our arsenal. Hopefully, keep these things in our minds. Number one, recognize the dreadful plague of division. Recognize the dreadful plague of division. He says, all, especially ministers, should have a deep impression of how terrible the plague of division is. Here he's dealing with the issue of, we need to get our hearts and minds right on this issue. We need to think properly about it. Now we saw this a little bit when we considered the, the denunciations of division and discord from the Scriptures. One of the seven things that God hates is a man who sows discord. It's, it's, it's a, a very wicked thing. All division is a fruit of sin. Heaven, glory, will be a place of perfect unity. Absolute perfect unity. Division or disunity then, disagreement, controversy, these are things that God is going to have to set right before, in us, before bringing us to dwell in His presence or making His dwelling place with us. So Durham says, you, you need to realize, this is, this is not a little thing. It's like a plague. Division in a church is a potential death sentence. It is a symptom of a chronic ecclesiastical, autoimmune disease. Discord is a cancer. It's a plague. It's a gangrene. It spreads. It destroys. It kills. And so the reality is that either supernatural healing comes, the cancer is cut out, or the church dies. That's how severe it is. Recognize the plague. A plague is upon a church where there are these types of discords and diseases or discords and, and disunity. Now, one of the means of, of getting our minds to think this way is this. He says, The many sad consequences of division should be brought before the mind and the heart should be seriously affected and humbled with this. In other words, bring to your mind what are the effects of discord and disunity and division. Think about it and let it settle down into your heart. This would be the opposite or over against what we might call Cainism, this am I my brother's keeper mentality. Just am I my brother's keeper? Put it out of your mind. No, don't do that. Actually bring it into your mind and let it resonate with you how deadly this is. It's, it's to our shame that we're not more affected, that we're not more humbled by what is actually happening when there's discord and division and strife. 
One way that we are affected and humbled, he says, is by taking the time to think about or to meditate upon the consequences of these things. Division, controversy, debate, strifes. What are the consequences when this seeps into a church or a denomination or, or the church broadly? What are the consequences? There are private consequences. Private. The division, the disagreement that's, that's ongoing, it fills your mind. Thoughts that would have before been joyful, well now they're replaced with uneasiness, with anxious thoughts. Your private duties before the Lord, where you want to focus on the things of the Lord, they're now clouded with thoughts of the controversy. Private consequences. There are personal consequences that come. Friends are alienated from one another. Friendships are stunted. Fellowship becomes cold and lifeless because of this fog of controversy that surrounds a people. There are public consequences. The name of Christ is reproached. Especially when it becomes a topic of conversation among outsiders. The gospel is defamed. The truth is made to look weak in the world. Those Christians, they can't even agree among themselves about what the truth is. And you want me to come and join your club? Public consequences. And there are corporate consequences in, in the churches. God's Spirit is, is presented to us like a dove, easily offended. God's Spirit will not abide where these things are happening. Growth in the church and churches is stunted. Our witness becomes powerless. Corporate consequences. Durham says, When the plague of division strikes a church, we must recognize that God is the one striking the church. And it could be due to His displeasure with the sin of the church and its ministers. Public division, public discord, is often just the manifestation of sins that had been hidden up until that point. Hidden pride, hidden unbelief are brought to light through corporate discord. The, then the church becomes the stage on which secret sins are now showcased. All of a sudden it comes out. You've been thinking this way all along. You've been believing, believing this way all along. You thought you could keep it hidden, but now it's exposed. This happens. Division. It's like a plague. Division is a judgment of God upon the church. You have to recognize it that way. Number two, recognize division as a fearful snare. A fearful snare. Durham says people should also view division as a snare. How many temptations accompany divisions? Especially for ministers. How many afflictions, crosses, and reproaches come on the back of them? That is the divisions. Might it not make a minister tremble? To think that now, due to the division, there is a snare and trial in everything? You think, that, that sounds a little extreme, but think about it. Where, where there is division, where there is strife, where there is controversy, every worship service, every time there's a gathering, it is an, a, a potential occasion for bitterness to rise up amongst the people. Every song that is sung in the assembly is an opportunity for hypocrisy amongst the people. Every meeting of the church becomes a burden. 
when we should be doing the things that are only unto edification, our minds are instead taken up with the controversy. Things that might be unto edification, we avoid simply because it might sound like we're encouraging the opposing side. Well, I don't want to say that. They might think I'm on the wrong team. And things that don't edify, well, we're tempted to bring that up anyway because it gives life or strength or power to our own side in the controversy. Durham says, because of division, almost all conversation becomes disheartening and comfortless. The most intimate brother is either suspicious or suspected. All constructions put on people's sincerity is in anything comes to be based on their own interests. So what he's saying is out of rivalry, you've got your teams, out of rivalry, we, we begin to judge nothing is sincere anymore. We, we view everything as a defense of one's own view. Because our minds are filled with the discord, the controversy, we then assume everybody else is the same way. If it's filling my mind, it must be filling their mind. And therefore, everything that's happening, we view through the lens of scheme and strategy and war, like everything is an attempt to win somebody to our side. He says, alas, in times of division, many people act with more confidence and liberty and with less sensitivity in speaking, acting, and attributing motives than at other times. When we taste the blood of debate and argument and of winning the day, we, we, we let our guard down. We just want more blood. And we will begin to act and say and do whatever it takes to win, even at the expense of our brothers and sisters. We will act and say and do things that we would not normally have said. It, it's not us, but it comes out in the, the heat of the so-called battle. Just think of, of sports. It would be very strange if you were at the store and a grown man just ran through the store at another man and just tackled him to the ground. You'd say, this is weird. What is happening? But if he puts pads on and a jersey on, you say, well, they're just competing. That's the idea. In, when, it's, when everything is a war, everything is a competition, all of a sudden you begin to act that way. Durham again, yet if people were impressed with the fear of sinning due to divisions, they would be much more disposed to speak of union. We must fear the snare of sin. We must become afraid of sinning. Especially when our words and our thoughts and our actions concern Christ's own sheep. So we have to recognize the snare, everything. It's a plague, and within that plague, everything becomes a snare. Number three, recognize our personal responsibility. Recognize our personal responsibility. He says, ministers and others should take time in secret before the Lord to take a sober view of their own spiritual condition and see if they have kept their own vineyard. This is akin to removing the logs out of your own eye. Where there is disunity, where there is division, we start with ourselves. Just as judgment begins with the household of God, so in God's household, judgment must begin with each of us in particular, examining ourselves. Too often in debates, too much time is spent learning the sides and learning the arguments for each side rather than just examining our own hearts before God. 
recognize our personal responsibility, then Durham suggests three questions that we could ask ourselves for self-examination. The first one is oddly three questions. How have I prized union with the Lord? Have I striven to be in Christ and to abide in Him? Have I striven to keep myself in the love of God? Number two, is there any ground of quarrel in current trends or bygone practice that might provoke the Lord to smite us in general? In other words, is there anything that we're doing as a church that might provoke the Lord? Is there anything that we're not doing that we should be doing that would provoke the Lord to bring this plague upon a church that would provoke Him? Number three, have I been an accessory in any way to bring in this evil of division? Examine ourselves, he says. Recognize our personal responsibility. Then he gives examples, because you might say, well, how do I know if I've been an accessory? He gives us examples of how we might lend to divisions. Negligence and unfaithfulness. Are you habitually failing to do that which ought to be done or which you have committed to do? Negligence, unfaithfulness. Imprudence. Imprudence. Are you generally unconcerned about the consequences of your actions? Prudence is thinking through what's going to happen if I do this. Imprudence is saying, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. That can tend toward division. Heat is a word he used. Heat. Are you generally very animated in speech or actions? People like this, I tend to be this way. You say things and you don't realize you're, you're just real animated and other people are kind of getting nervous, backing away. You're just talking. People have to say, calm down. Whoa, 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 calm down. But that can tend toward division. It, 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 it scares normal people. Another word similar is passion. Are you characterized by a zeal or a vehement desire for something that others are just not passionate about? You can't understand why aren't they as passionate about it as I am. That tends toward division. It divides people. These are the passionate ones. These are the unpassionate ones. Tenaciousness. Do you hold firmly or rigidly to things? Are you willing to die on hills that aren't worth dying on? That causes division. Addiction to personalities and too much reluctance to displease them. So are you taken up with pleasing men, even even those here or even close friends? You're not willing to say, hey, cut me off from your team. I don't care to be on anybody's team. Sometimes our addiction to personalities will cause division. Prejudice against others. Prejudice against others. Are you disposed against someone, a, a person disposed against someone so that you would rather take the opposing side against them regardless of the fight. I just don't like him. So whatever side he's on, put me on the other side. I don't don't like him. That stirs up or lends to division. Uncharitableness to others. Uncharitableness. Do you suffer from a lack of love? Are you unwilling... To bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. These are the types of things, Durham says, that they might characterize you and you don't know that it's tending, lending to the division, but it will if you're not careful. So we must recognize and admit our personal responsibility in matters of disunity. Number four, 
recognize failures in repentance before God. Recognize failures in repentance before God, Durham says. Once they have taken stock, there should be repentance appropriate to what is found in special humbling and secret prayer to God. In other words, don't just acknowledge your faults, but take them to the Lord in true repentance. Endeavor after new obedience where you have sinned by the Lord's strength. He says again, this should not... This should be not only for themselves and for their own condition, but for the whole church. In particular, the healing for healing the division so that by healing the breach, God would spare His people and not allow His inheritance to be a reproach. In other words, where there is discord, the church, the whole church is to pray for the whole church. We do take a, a, an inventory of our own hearts but we also consider and pray for the church as a whole. Remember, Moses prayed that God would not abandon His people so that God would not be reproached. When, when you understand what we saw earlier, that it's a plague, it's a reproach, then you will pray, God, take this from our church. We should earnestly desire the glory of God and not just peaceful, friendly fellowship. Recognize failures in repentance. He says, it is no little furtherance to union to have people in a spiritual and mortified condition. That is humble-minded. When you're truly repentant, you're humbled, humiliated before God for your sin, and that tends toward unity. Pride tends toward disunity. Now what happens? What happens when we're all humble-minded, all of us in humility, we are counting one another more significant than ourselves? What's going to happen? The glory cloud's not going to come down. But Durham says, quote, If it does not remove the difference, it will moderate the division to a great degree and restrain carnality that usually accompanies it. It will dispose people to be more impartial to hear what may lead further toward unity. So maybe it doesn't take the difference out, but it, but it lowers the temperature of the whole thing. It moderates the division. You see, if our hearts aren't hard at first, disunity and discord, that will make us hard over time. Men who spend lots of time in battle, eventually they become hard to normal society. So as debate rises, we pick our side, and very often we will decide from the start that we will not ever hear or listen to or consider what might tend toward unity. I'm not listening. I've already picked my side. We say effectively in the debate, here are my terms. Here's what can make for unity among us. You want unity? You stop talking. Stop giving your opinion. Adopt my opinion. Then we'll have unity. We'll all get along. We say, the next words I want to hear from you is, I recant my position and take yours. We'll have unity. We harden ourselves. We won't listen at all. But when we've spent time before God in true repentance and we are in what He calls a spiritual and mortified condition, we say, I just want unity. I want to win you, my brother and my sister. Not the argument. I don't want to win you to my side. I want to win you. I want to know and understand what it is that you believe and if at the end of the day we still disagree, at least I can say I honestly know what my brother or sister believes. 
But that doesn't happen when we're hard. It happens when we're soft, when we are repentant and in that humbled state before God. We must repent and turn from divisive thinking. Repentance softens our hearts. Number five, do what you can to recommend unity. Do what you can to recommend unity. Durham again, people should not stop here, but should seriously endeavor by speaking, writing, and imploring to commend union to those who differ. What have we seen from the Scriptures? God loves unity. Unity is good and pleasant. Unity is like the oil on the head of Aaron. Unity is like the dew on Mount Hermon. That's David commending unity. Can't you see it? Can't you see how great it is? That's what he's doing. He's, he's recommending it. Durham says, Indeed, even those who differ should commend union to those who differ from them. In other words, we should say, maybe we're even a third party. Hey, y'all, y'all, well, y'all need to get along. As Paul did with Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4.2. I entreat, Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now Paul could have probably come along and said, Hey, listen, Euodia's writing this, okay? But he didn't. He just said, Y'all need to agree. Work it out. He says, this is Durham again, People should encourage others with whom they agree to be conciliatory and should seriously entreat them When they go to extremes, they should rebuke them for the good of the church. This is often very effective. Often also those who are most prominent in a difference will be hotter and carry things further than others of the same opinions will allow. Those who are less involved in the controversy ought not to be silent in this case. What's he saying? He's saying when matters get put, when this is happening and matters get put into this this one side versus another framework. Everybody picks their sides. This side versus this side. People on the same side should be imploring the people with their view, pleading with them to seek unity. And he says, in every debate, this is my, my summary of what he just said, he's saying in every debate there are some who become sort of the face of their side. They, they become the champion put forward for this particular position. And that person, because they have everybody behind them, you know, go for it, go get them, get them, do this, you know, get them, do it, do what you have to do. They're, they're not involved in, the, involved in the fight. I'm not going to swing anything, but I'll, I'll definitely cheer you on while you're swinging. These will often say things in the heat of debate and controversy that are actually too strong. Too extreme. Otherwise, godly men drift into lies and slander and mockery in order to gain ground against their opponents and to get more on their side. And very often, even their own teammates in private are saying, yeah, I'm not sure I would have went that far. I I, I wouldn't... uh, What he's saying, I don't really agree. Why don't you say that publicly? Well... That wouldn't win us any points. That's what he's saying. Those less involved, cooler-headed people should rebuke their friends. And they should say to them, hey, you went too far. That's too much. You're not after unity anymore. You're after blood. And a Christian cannot be that way to his brothers and sisters. Do what you can to commend unity. 
We do not act as Christians when we do only what we can to extend the division even further. Make it more stark, more black and white. That's not commending unity. That's just making it even more divided. Number six, make unity the priority. Make unity the priority. Have we not said this? Unity is to be our priority. From Scripture, I think we can affirm that obtaining and maintaining unity must be our priority. Durham agrees. He says, Serious and single-minded thoughts of union should be proposed, and union should be purposefully driven at as the great duty, so that endeavors would not principally tend to strengthen one side or let the other exonerate themselves or to get advantage over others, but to make one out of them both. Therefore, when one means or opportunity fails, another should be attempted. Neither should they be weary in this, although it often proves a most wearisome business. In, in, in other words, he's saying everything that's, that's said needs to promote unity. We're not trying to build up one side, not trying to find the victor, not trying to find the winter, winner, nor do we ignore sin. We don't ignore error. We just make unity the priority. Unity is not working as hard as we can to crown the victor in the debate. Unity is the pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony. And though it is a wearisome business, he says, it's our duty. Make unity the priority. Number seven, act with sensitivity and respect. Act with sensitivity and respect. Something that is altogether lost in current evangelicalism. It's gone. I, the, the more I think to this subject, and this has been, this has been my, my thinking grounds for literally seven days a week for since mid-October. And the more I think about this and consider this, the more I begin to realize it is no wonder our nation is under God's judgment. The Christians, the way that the Christians act toward one another is repulsive. It's repulsive. He says, act with sensitivity. And, and I will say this, I'm not, I'm not innocent in the matter. I'm not innocent. I've done it. I have done it. It's repulsive to me. It's repulsive to God. Act with sensitivity and respect. Durham says, all this should be attempted with sensitivity and respect to people's persons, actions, and qualifications. For often when division occurs, people are alienated from each other and their affections which then disposes them to put bad constructions both, both on their opinions and their actions. In other words, rather than bearing all things, we immediately just condemn every notion of those that we disagree with. Rather than believing all things, we become distrustful and suspicious. Rather than hoping all things, we assume and expect the worst. When there's discord, disunity, division, debate, controversy, difference of views... Each side has the tendency to put the worst possible spin on the view of their opponents. So every opinion and every action is presented as, is, as utter evil. That, oh, that view. Well, I don't believe that. That's utter evil. And, and just to use his, his language, bad construction. Spin it to make it as evil as we can. All sensitive, sensitivity to their fellow man... And respect for them as brothers and sisters goes out the window. They are viewed only as an opponent to be conquered. And that should not be. This is not how Christians should treat one another. 
act with sensitivity and respect. Durham then suggests eight ways that we can show respect toward those with whom we disagree. Number one, be respectful when mentioning them and their concerns. Number two, put good constructions on their aims, intentions, and sincerity, even in such actions as are displeasing. In other words, assume the best. Even if you say, I wouldn't do that and I don't believe that, but just assume the best. Put the best construction on it you can. Number three, refrain from loading their opinions and actions with plain absurdities and high aggravations, especially in public. In other words, don't talk about your opponents in such a way that if if somebody wasn't familiar with the the controversy, but they hear you talk about your opponents, they would say, oh, if that's what they believe, then of course they're wrong. Don't, Don't speak that way. Number four, abstain from all personal derogatory marks, remarks as well as sliding answers, disdainful words, and greetings, and such like. Instead, there should be love, familiarity, and tenderness. Number five, express mutual confidence, excuse me, in one another. Mutual confidence should be expressed not only regarding the persons, but also the ministry of those they differ from, endeavoring to strengthen and confirm it. In other words, speak so as to commend those even with whom you disagree. You don't have to commend what they believe or what you believe to be an error, but you can commend them. Nor do you have to condemn a believer because you believe them to have an error. Number six, support them and show confidence that they are trustworthy. And if they are in leadership, fit to hold leadership positions in the church. Often, we will singularly usurp the authority of the local church by deeming a man that we don't even know unworthy. When his church has said otherwise, the people who know him have said otherwise, just because we disagree with him or her on some issue. Now, that's not our role to play. That's not the individual's role to play even if we do believe it correct to be ourselves, that's not our position. There are people who will ask me, hey, what do you think about a church? Should a man be in a pastoral position who does this or who does that or who believes this or who believes that or who has done this? And I'll tell them, that's not my position. I have my views. That's the, their church makes those decisions, not me. That, that authority hasn't been given to me. Support them and show confidence that they're trustworthy. And if they are in leadership, fit to hold leadership positions in the church, he says, quote, to the, the contrary, not doing that, is disobliging and irritating to all because it proposes that all who follow that opinion or practice are unworthy of office bearing or trust, which is hard for anyone to stomach. He says, in other words, you, you, you condemn that one person and say, well, he's unfit because of this error. Well, you just said that Basically, everybody who believes that view, all of them are unfit. He says, nobody can stomach that. That doesn't make any sense. You should support them. And if they are in leadership, encourage that. Number seven, mutual visits and fellowship. These are ways that we show respect. Mutual visits and fellowship. If this has been already happening, or happening already, it should be increased even more. Number eight, treat pejorative terms as unacceptable. Pejorative, disparaging, derogatory, defamatory, slanderous, libelous, abusive, insulting terms. Treat them as unacceptable. As James 4.11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
those are ways that we can act with sensitivity and respect. Be respectful. Be sensitive. Again, be tenderhearted. Verse 8, or number 8. Number 8, stir each other up in the things that matter. Stir each other up in the things that matter. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Durham says, This is very effective in dealing with disunity because when either ministers or church members are exercised and taken up with these things, there's little opportunity for other things. Remember, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that keeps us so busy that we don't have time for disputes and controversies. Differences vanish when you're in the foxhole. Then, that is when, when we're busy about other things, things that matter, then also they discern the necessity of union the more and are the more disposed for it themselves and, are, and others are more easily induced to unite with them. The busier we are in, in the work, or the busy, busier we are with the work of the kingdom, the more united we become. But the busier we are building our own kingdom, the more we realize I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody to help me build my kingdom. And division is acceptable. Division is a small thing to people who don't need anybody else. Why would you care if there's division? What he's saying is. When you get busy about the real work of the kingdom, you realize you can't do it by yourself. I can't do this by myself. I need help. We ought to be so busy in the work of Christ's kingdom that we don't have time to think about all of the petty differences that exist between Christians. Stir each other up in the things that matter. Think about what, the, what Christianity would be like in America if nobody had time for a podcast. If nobody had time to make YouTube videos. Just imagine what would be happening. Number nine, appeal to God. Appeal to God. There should be solemn appeals to God for directing and guiding in the way to this end. For He is the God of peace and ought to be acknowledged in removing the great evil of division. We are commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122.6, He says, Church peace, the peace of Jerusalem. That doesn't mean pray that everything will get settled down in the Middle East so that we can finish building the, the, the temple. Pray for the peace of God's people, the church. He says, We underestimate the seriousness of division by failing to recognize it as a rod, being content to live with it without seeking to have it removed by Him. In other words, being content with it and not praying at all, and fruitlessly expecting a blessing on the gospel in the absence of peace. If we recognize the seriousness of division and disunity in the church, whether locally or universally, if we recognized how serious it was, we would be often in prayer to God that He would heal His churches. Very often, you read David Brainerd's diary, he often prayed for Zion to be built up and strengthened. He had in his mind the people of God all around the world. If we expect a blessing to be on the gospel we preach then we would pray that God would guide His church and His churches to unity. That the gospel would be effective. We often wonder, well, why, why is the gospel so ineffective? Why, why aren't souls being gathered in like they were in the past? But, but if you read history, you, you realize how these men thought. We've been talking about Adoniram Judson. 
these, we'll, they will look to anybody. Somebody give us some support so we can go. And they were looking for missionaries to send. That, that was a, a common thing. Unity. We're going to have to work together. And we would pray that that would happen. But now, there's, there's so much division. So much discord. So much controversy. And yet, we still expect the gospel is going to be fruitful. And we wonder, how is it that the, the biblical gospel is going forth? I hear it. Nothing's happening. It just falls to the ground and people walk by. Why? I can't help but think that this is one of the reasons. Often we think of evangelism and the Great Commission as merely a personal matter. That if I feel like I'm personally right with the Lord and I'm privately right with the Lord and I'm doing family worship and I'm evangelizing in the workplace, well, God's going to pour out the blessing when we're not united with His people. There's division. We forget that the blessing of life comes where brothers dwell in unity. We forget that the world will know us by our love for one another and not for ourselves. The Great Commission was given to the church, not merely to individuals, but to the church. We forget that Christ came for a people, not merely a person, but a people. And through that people, gathered together and unified, His gospel goes forward. When we believe this, we will be making solemn appeals to God. Heal the controversies. Heal the divisions. If there are damnable heresies and errors, Lord, make it clear and wipe them off of the stage of what we, what we call the visible church. Wipe them away and make it clear so that that which is true will be made manifest. And where there are differences and where there are minutia of opinions, help us to see that's okay. It's acceptable. That's, that's just Christianity in a fallen world. But we'll pray for these things. So that's what Durham says. Those are his nine points. May the Lord give us grace as we consider these things. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among, among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we break the bread again. As a reminder of what Christ has endured for us, the very justice and even vengeance of God upon Him in our place. When we come to the table, we are fixing our attention upon what is the centerpiece of our gospel, and that is Christ's crucifixion. Him enduring in His own body that penalty for our sins, sins that were ours, that are ours, that, that require a punishment. And yet He was punished for sins that were ours. So then we are not punished for the sins that we have committed. Through faith we, we, we cling to Him. And Paul says... Whoever therefore eats the bread of the cup 
or eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Again, these elements, they do nothing for us apart from fixing our faith upon the Christ that they point us to. The bread points us to His body. The, bl- the, the, the cup points us to His blood shed for us. We're looking to Him and resting ourselves upon Him. So consider that as we pass out the elements and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.